Welcome to episode 546 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with staff writer and chief theater critic for the Washington Post, Peter Marks. We talk with Peter about his background, his journey from the New York Times to the Washington Post, being an everyday news reporter as compared to being a theater critic, his days in theater at Yale, bringing our lives to the theater, how critics don't have the power they used to, streaming a series versus going to the theater, Here Lies Love, Jukebox Musicals, People Wanting to Laugh at Present, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois, What Makes a Hit, and The Value of the Arts. Among other things, a grand conversation with Peter Marks this go-round. We also have two EW poetic pieces, titled Moments Alone and Stage. And of course, all of this will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 546 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Snake Speedway in the Utah desert I pick up my money Head back in town Driving across the Waynesboro County line I got the radio on And I'm just killing time Working all day in my dad's garage Yeah, driving all night Chasing some mirage Pretty soon, darling, I'm gonna take charge Well, the dogs on Main Street howl Cause they understand If I could take this moment into my hands Mister, I ain't a boy No, I'm a man I believe there's a promised land I done my best now to live the right way I get up every morning, go to work each day. But your eyes go blind, your blood runs cold. Sometimes I feel so weak. So weak I want to explode. Explode and tear this whole town apart. Take a knife and cut this pain from my heart. Try to find somebody itching for something to start Well, the dogs on Main Street howl Cause they understand If I could take this moment into my hands Mister, I ain't a boy No, I'm a man I believe 
there's a promised land There's a dark cloud rising from a desert floor I pack my bags and I'm headed straight into the storm Gonna be twister to blow everything down But ain't got the faith to stand its ground Blow away the dream or tear you apart Blow away the dreams that break your heart Blow away the lies that leave you nothing Nothing but loss Brokenhearted. Well, the dogs on Main Street howl because they understand if I could take this moment into my hands. Mister, I ain't a boy. No, I'm a man. I believe there is a promised land. I believe there is a promised land. I believe there's a promise to Moments alone. Old Jack coming around the bend with his red baseball cap, plaid jacket, and a ballpoint pen in his left top pocket. He seems discontented. Tree cutters down the road making noise pollution with their big machines as they take another one down and feed it to the wood chipper. Yellow, red, green auburn nestled as the mountainside out this window. The afternoon wind spins a tin star as it reflects colorful light and makes the house alive with whistles and rumbles as several birds squawk and fly branch to branch. It's the little things you do together, do together, do together, that make perfect relationships. The hobbies you pursue together, savings you accrue together, looks you misconstrue together, that make marriage a jewel. Swear together, wear together, that make perfect relationships. The concerts you enjoy together, neighbors you annoy together, children you destroy together, that keep marriage intact. It's not so hard to be married when to maneuver as one. It's not so hard to be married, and Jesus Christ, is it fun? It's sharing little wings together, drinks together, 
stockings together that make marriage a joy. There's bargains that you shop together, cigarettes you stop together, clothing that you swap together that make perfect relationships. It's not talk of God and the decade ahead that allows you to get through the worst. It's I do and you don't and nobody said that and who brought the subject up first. It's the little things, the little things, the little things, the little things. The little ways you cry together, cry together, cry together. Peter Marks, is that you? It is, Lawrence. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I'm thrilled to be here. And uh, before we get started, let me share a little bit about you with the listeners. Peter Marks is a staff writer and chief theater critic for the Washington Post. Prior to 2002, he was a reporter and theater critic at the New York Times, where he covered the 2000 presidential campaign. Mr. Marks has been a reporter and feature writer for Newsday and worked at the Newark Star-Ledger and other New Jersey newspapers. His Newsday team won the 1992 Pulitzer Prize for local reporting. Peter has taught theater criticism at George Washington University and co-hosted the theater podcast Three on the Isle. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is very happy to have on the program Peter Marks. Again, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. Thanks. I'm thrilled to uh, get a chance to talk theater with you, E.W. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put my camera on, too, since you put yours on. Um, <laughs> the The first thing, I guess, is your background. Yes. Well, um, I started, I, I mean, my background really is as a theater lover. I mean, that's where it all started for me uh, at a very tender age. Uh, and it developed over time uh, so that I had a real library, a real archives in my head about theater and what it could do, um, both in terms of musicals and plays. But my training for many, many years uh, was as a, a, a sort of a, a, a news uh, uh, reporter was not in, in theater criticism at all. I was a uh, I was a, a reporter and a feature writer at a number of newspapers, and it wasn't until I got to the New York Times in uh, 1993, where I was hired to be the Long Island bureau chief uh, for the Metro Desk, that the, the job of theater reporter opened, and I applied for it. That was a job that required you to write a column about the theater and cover write profiles and features and news about theater. And sometime after that. 
the uh, a, a job opened up for the uh, off-Broadway critic at the Times, and the paper asked me to take on the job. I said, no, thank you. I don't particularly like critics. Uh, I was a I was a, a, an actor in college, and I wrote letters to the Yale Dilling News complaining about when they didn't like our plays, like, how dare you? <laughs> and uh, But they said, no, give it a try, and I did. I went to, did some practice reviews, and they were deemed good enough for me to be given the job of uh, off-Broadway theater critic for the New York Times. So overnight, I went from being just a guy who loved theater to being what was arguably the second most powerful theater job in 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 uh, journalism. And uh, subsequently, uh, the uh, Washington Post recruited me. I, I remained this, the, uh, the off-Broadway critic until the 2000 campaign, presidential campaign, when I went to cover that for the Times. They thought it was a funny idea to have a theater critic cover in politics. <laughs> and, seems, and after, ap seems apropos, really. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I found out that every political reporter is a theater critic. That's the, <laughs> you know, the, the irony. And then... Um, uh, in 2002, the Washington Post asked me if I would be interested in being their chief theater critic. And I thought, you know, that would be a lot of fun and interesting to sort of run my own shop as opposed to being the guy who received assignments after the chief critic didn't want to take them. And uh, so I've been at the Washington Post for about 20 years. And, you know, uh, right now, are you uh, talking to us from your place uh, out, out there near Washington, D.C., I suppose? Yes, I am. Uh, I am at the moment in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. I'm here for the week. I, I divide my time between New York and Washington. New York becoming increasingly important for a mainstream media outlet like mine to to be present at, just because of the the interest readers have the the uh, you know, a wider audience of readers that the Washington Post seeks to uh, bring in. But right this week, I'm in Washington seeing some plays. I'm going to a play tonight at a at a theater company tomorrow night too at Rena Stage. So uh, it's back and forth. I basically live on Amtrak. Yeah, it sounds that way. And yeah. uh, do do you ever um, prefer every day in your mind news reporting to being a theater critic? Do you ever think back and go, "Wow, you know what"? Total. You know, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, of course, I do. Uh, there is there is a great pull for me in in the in the in the in just the tradition of of being a reporter. And the wonderful thing about my beat is, unlike say a critic at the New York Times who was really sort of um, siloed into just writing opinion pieces, I have a broader mandate. I get to write features. I get to uh, do news pieces about the theater. I really sort of cover the waterfront in a in a more comprehensive way. And it even extends beyond. Um, the the uh, the parameters sometimes of what we think of as theater. I spent much of the 2020 presidential campaign uh, during the primary period going out uh, on in the field and writing pieces about the performative skills of the various Democratic candidates. I sort of applied sort of the rules of theater to sort of to these candidates to understand how they reached uh, audiences in in the retail politics portion of the campaign. That's fascinating, and yeah, and when you come when you come to being a theater critic, is is there a certain type of I guess training that you would need to be a theater critic? You it seems to me were involved in theater when you were a student. Correct. Uh, is that how you learned about what? is a good production, what is good direction, what is good acting, and things of that nature? Yeah, that's a really, really important question. 
I, I took the only theater courses I ever took were in acting. I was, um, I, uh, as an undergraduate at Yale, I was in the, in the theater classes of, uh, of a, a revered theater uh, director named Nico Sakharopoulos, who founded the Williamstown Theater Festival. And I was in a lot of plays at Yale. So I learned a lot about acting from people who were really good. Paul Rudnick, who's a playwright, a, a very prominent one, was one of my classmates. We were in, I was in a play with him. Polly Draper, uh, another well-known actress who ended up on 30-something, mm-hmm. was also a, a classmate. So I, I got a really good taste for it. And, 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 it, and it just fed my natural sort of love of theater. And after that, my education was really just going. And, uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't until I got to the times that I got to write it all about theater. And that was another way of becoming a theater critic uh, was just, you know, being able to ask questions of very skilled people in the business. But I had no background in theory. You know, I had none of that sort of grounding. One might think a person sitting in this seat would need. But the fact of the matter is that a paper like The New York Times valued writing skill and observation skills uh, over technical knowledge, which I acquired on the job, uh, essentially. Right, and and I I guess, and I have no clue because I'm not a, a theater critic. I'm a critic in general. You can you can ask my <laughs> wife about that. You know, <laughs> but uh, what was that? Everyone is a critic. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but when when you're um, trying to suss whether or not uh, a particular a particular production is 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 good or bad, is it is mm-hmm. it gut as well as you know your your experience with with other productions? Yes. Yeah. The answer is taste is a very uh, individual thing, as we all know, no two people. Anyone who says to me, "Oh, you know, I always agree with you," I think, uh, "Well, I don't always even agree with me." You know, I mean, it's like that is not a possibility. Uh, you can't. We we all have. Su- we all bring our lives to the theater, and that informs some of how we we figure out what we like and don't like. But for me, it all starts with the gut. It is a kind of my wiring. You know, my circuitry is all about the emotional connection that I make or don't make with material, even the most abstract kind. So what happens is my gut informs my brain. It sends a message to my brain, and then my brain says, well, let me figure out why I'm having this experience, either positive or negative. And then I look to the, then that taps into all the range of, 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 of my knowledge base in, in various aspects of theater, in terms of staging, in terms of design, in terms of um, emotional content, and in terms of literary merit. I mean, those things all become part of your, uh, uh, the, the pool of resources that you use to figure out how do you explain your feelings about a given production. Excellent, excellent, great insight. Thank you for sharing that. Now, um, when, when we, we look at theater today, what, do you, what is the right. state of it, especially post-pandemic? Right. Uh, it's in trouble. Uh, theater is in trouble, uh, and, and it's a serious trouble. And it runs across the gamut of, of uh, commercial and what we call the commercial world, which is really what many Broadway productions are, producers who raise the money to put on a show, and the, the nonprofit world, which is most of the theaters across the country, which are run by boards – 
that raise money for the, sh the, the product, for the company. Um, they're not in the business of making money for the company. Uh, so it's a different model, but both are in trouble because audiences have not returned uh, in the numbers they were seeing shows before the pandemic. And it, and it runs from Broadway all the way to, you know, tiny theater companies across the country. Some places are having successes with some shows. It's not every show that's failing, but generally speaking, uh, we're talking about about a 20% decline in audiences. And that margin is very much the difference between solvency and insolvency in this business. That 20% is what pays the bills and makes you have a little bit more to be able to hire good people to do more plays. Uh, so it's a really concerning and uh, scary time for the theater. And, and you know, the, uh, the, 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 the concurrent thing that's happened is that critics don't have the power they once had to make or break shows. People at the same time that audiences have moved away from theater and part of the reason that happened was I think that that over the time of the pandemic, a lot of people found out they could live without it. Uh, and, and those people found in things like streaming series that they devoted their days to or their evenings to that gave them a lot of freedom of choice about the time they went, about how much they had to spend to have this entertaining experience, really changed the way they thought about going out. Like the, the threshold for what would make compel you to get in your car somewhere, find parking, um, pay for dinner before a show, pay for the tickets, expensive tickets often, um, th that those became factors that were harder to justify for many people. And in a city like New York, for example, also where offices all emptied out during the pandemic, uh, weeknight performances suddenly were devoid of those people who stayed in the city after work and said, I'm going to go see a show tonight before I get back uh, on the train to New Jersey or Connecticut or Westchester. So, so there were all kinds of um, uh, bad effects on theater uh, going as a as a as a as just a, a, a part of one's routine or even occasional routine right and i i would think too that that number of people in and of itself when you look at the the total population of the country is probably relatively small those right. regular theater goers to begin with exactly uh, and and well, there are a couple questions that come to mind. When when you're looking at the benefits of theater over sitting on your couch and watching, a, a, you know, a TV series, streaming that regularly, binging it, whatever you want to call it, how how well, how do you how do you tell someone the benefits of theater over that choice of staying on your couch and watching TV? That's you're, you're asking the fundamentally essential questions of what theater is trying to understand about itself. It's an it's a issue of marketing. It's an issue of uh, motivation. It's an, it's, an, um, it's an aspect of how much you love the arts and how much curiosity you have because there's no replacement. There's no situation you can replicate in your home that has the same feeling of being at a live performance, whether it's a concert, whether it's a, um, um, a ballet, whether it's a theater performance, there's just no replacement. So the answer is one has to be mentored to go to understand the theater. You have to bring people into the theater, either by virtue of the total excitement you generate yourself or by some name brand person 
who excites you like huge, a Hugh Jackman in The Music Man or Daniel Radcliffe in Merrily We Roll Along or Leah Michelle in Funny Girl. Sometimes that's the threshold point for people. They feel some guarantee that they're going to have an experience that is meaningful to them. And sometimes that 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 uh, that transaction involves somebody well known who they feel will uh, delight them in some way. And so that's the you know, that's a very difficult problem for many uh, uh, pieces of theater to solve. And um, so so persuading people, you know, with a promotion of theater, maybe also ticket prices have gotten so high that some people don't even count it as an option. And so maybe if the word got out that, you know, there are there are ways to see plays for less than the cost of, you know, of like draining your child's college education fund, <laughs> um, that 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 might that might be a, a, an incentive uh, uh, that would make people. I don't think the answer is I love it. Go see it. I don't think that's that's going to do it. it. It has to. There has to be some other uh, motivating factor that has to be introduced. Yeah, and and when you look, you talk about ticket prices. To go to see a major league baseball game or an NFL football game or NBA basketball, any of those professional sports, those tickets are equally as high. But people True. spend money to go see those, right? Absolutely right. Uh, and Absolutely. also, I think people get the notion that theater and the arts in general are for the elite, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or only for people that are highly educated, uh, formally high, highly educated. Right. And that too, I don't, I don't buy, uh, because good art uplifts you. It, it touches you. It, it stimulates and stirs you as a, as a person. Right. Mm-hmm. But people don't seem to more, more people don't seem to know it or, or get that. Yeah. And it's, it's a weird, um, disconnect because, so much of theater is accessible and makes no attempt to uh, to make you feel uh, that you're not smart. And and so many shows have so much heart and 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 in, and joy in them that it would that it, it I find it hard to understand how how it can't reach everyone. And if you and what I find often the, the case is that when you do bring someone into the theater. Uh, they're stunned by how much they get out of it. A lot of people have gone to uh, Here Lies Love, which is a new musical that's struggling on Broadway. It's a concert. It's it's a kind of party. They've they've actually uh, renovated a theater called the Broadway Theater on Broadway uh, to accommodate this show, which is a 90 minute um, uh, 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 party. Uh, 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 basically sung through with the music of David Byrne and Fatboy Slim telling the story, slightly hard to um, conceptualize, but once you're there, you get it, uh, about the Marcoses in the Philippines. But anyway, the, it's alive, it's exciting, and and some of the people going, they people in the cast have even told me, people c- come up to them afterwards and say, is every show on Broadway like this? <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> because they have never experienced it before. They don't know that it's got this kind of life and that it can it can give you that kind of uh, pleasure. So uh, so part of it is just the the arduous task of getting people to uh, let go of their preconceptions and be invited in in one way or another, whether by lower price tickets or somebody bringing them or something about a thing that that just excites your curiosity. Um, You know, when. 
when uh, Bruce Springsteen came to Broadway a few years ago and the tickets were like 800 bucks, uh, uh, his fans would pay it. Right. They didn't care. You know, and, and to have and he understood the power of theater. He understood it because he made a theatrical piece. It was really storytelling, but done in a very uh, intimate way. And so, you know, there is an audience for it. I don't know, though, how do you activate the Springsteen fans to come again? It's not Bruce Springsteen. And I think that's one of the, the challenges. Yeah. Now, you uh, make a question pop into my mind about juke box uh productions mm. you know sometimes right. oftentimes they they're looked at as lesser uh right. do you agree with that well it no i i what i think is that there's a formula that's gotten really tired and it doesn't work anymore or it doesn't work very well which is to turn it into a kind of like you know the e, e the e channel used to do these um celebrity bios you know the story of a celebrity and what basically some of these jukebox shows do is just tell the story of the rise, you know, the struggle of a, of a performer, you know, using their own music and then telling about their, their you know, their success, their ultimate triumph. That's the sort of the, 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 the arc of the story. And it's it's very often the same story. And we all, you know, depending on how much you love a particular group or person's work, you know, it, it really leans so heavily on that that it gets really hackneyed. Mm -hmm. um, when Jersey Boys did it in the early 2000s, it was a smash because it really was kind of pioneering this thing. But now there have been like, you know, two dozen of them or three, who knows how many. And the only way you can really make it interesting, I think now, is to concoct a story, is to create a story that takes you somewhere else than it, through the life of the artist to make it interesting. Um, and Juliet, for example, is a jukebox musical of Max Martin's songs and for, um, for Britney Spears and, 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 and others. And what that has done is, is married uh, Shakespeare and jukebox wow. in an interesting way. It's the story of what would have happened to Juliet if she, if she had uh, lived at the end of Romeo and Juliet. And so it's so it's a very clever use and it's a success on Broadway. You know, it's a success on its own on its own merits, not just because it uses jukebox songs. Great, great. Um, so when when we're talking about uh, community theater, let's go there for a second. Yes. In your view, how important is that? In, in, in our in our society and and does it feed into perhaps people then giving giving it a go to go to, to New York City and, and see a, a Broadway show, do you think? Uh, I think a lot of people who do community theater uh, end up going to Broadway or going to their local shows. I mean, those are that is the support base for a lot of uh, a lot of theater. Um, and a lot of great artists start in community theater. You know, there it's it's um, it's not unusual to have. People with very highly skilled uh, actors and actresses who started locally in community theater, uh, but um, uh, I don't know that it. Um, gener I don't know if it's generative in that way that there's like a kind of scaling up that people start watching audiences, start watching community theater, then start going to regional theater, then start going to Broadway. I don't know if that's the the path. I think community theater is a hugely important bonding uh, aspect of local community gathering. And it's a way of instilling in people some appreciation for the form. I'm not sure, though, that it translates to then 
for only a small portion of the audience uh, and a, a, a further interest in getting really involved. I, I, you know, some of your listeners will be shaking their heads and going, no, 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 I go to everything. I go to community. I go to regional theaters. I go to Broadway. But I don't think uh, that as a rule, um, it's a, it's a tool for uh, it's a, it's a tool for, for for audience building for professional theater. Great, great. So now uh, we we have a, a theater se- season upon us. Anything uh, you've seen as of late that you're excited about? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I have ha- you know I think we're in a moment when people want to laugh. I mean, people always want to laugh, uh, but I think it's a particularly strong moment to, to for people to step back and feel like. They can release some tension in their lives in a space with other people. And the sound of laughter is one of those um, bonding feelings uh, that is unlike you can't get sit in front of your screen at Netflix and watching a Netflix show unless you've got a family of 45 people. who are <laughs> TV set. But uh, but you can feel that. And I, I recently saw a wonderful play called Jaja's African Hair Braiding by Jocelyn Bio, who is this great, funny playwright, um, um, New York-born playwright, who writes these plays about uh, about African, the African diaspora, really. And this one, it takes place in a salon, in a, in a hair braiding salon in in Harlem, uh, a culture I had no, I nothing knew nothing about, but is 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 portrayed as this wonderful. You know, it's kind of almost a little bit like Steel Magnolias. Um, uh, told with uh, with a black cast, mm-hmm. and and that really it really works. So that is a wonderful piece. I also recently saw Merrily We Roll Along, uh, the revival with Daniel Radcliffe and Jonathan Groff and Lindsay Mendez of a of a Sondheim musical that was always considered kind of troubled. It tells its story of these three characters, these three, three friends in chronological reverse. It starts with them as older people, cynical older people, and it traces them back to their joyful innocence. And it's often had problems just in terms of the structure of the piece. But somehow the uh, director, Maria Friedman, really has figured out how to make it about the bond of these three people and how the bond strengthens as they get younger. You see, and so in in a sense, you understand lost innocence and and what happens to people uh, as they age in, and you hear it all backwards. And, and, and Daniel Radcliffe, who's um, Harry Potter for all of right. you out there who that, um, start, has been, has become a devoted theater guy. He's done it over and over again uh, for for years now. He loves it, and he's really grown as an actor, as a stage actor. And I think this is his best performance yet, um, as as the as one of the three uh, friends. Excellent, excellent. You, you know, you you bring another question to mind uh, when you were discussing the Sondheim production that has some folks wondering, you know, how, how well, or maybe even if, if it was finished, I don't know, is that, was that part of it or if it, it just always had problems? It, it was finished. It just, it, it, the original production bombed. It was, uh, it's the only production in the, my entire life. It was before I was a critic in the eighties. I wrote, I bought tickets to the show and it closed before I could use my tickets wow. and they never gave me my money back. It's the <laughs> only show ever in the, my entire lifetime that the producers took my money and I got nothing for it. And, uh, but, but it never really, they never could figure out it, it, it started out as a, as a kind of cynical look at the entertainment industry. That's how the original productions uh, uh, pitched it. And I think that was always wrong. It, it, it felt cold and mm-hmm. hard. 
And I think that the, what's what's great about this production is the warmth of the story comes through the real love. It's a love story, it turns out, between these three people. And finding that out just opens the show up in ways that it never uh, was quite capable of doing before. I think it's freed the the vision. That, and I think that Sondheim also always had this reputation. Stephen Sondheim, who died at 91 a, a couple of years ago, um, that he was a cold composer. And I don't think that's true either. And I think that Merrily is an example. This this revisionist Merrily uh, makes it clear that he really did have a heart. And, and how did that revision occur? Is that the director? Was it, was it something uh, that uh, Sondheim had a hand in? Uh, yeah, well, he apparently before he died, he was he was very interested in this production. It, interestingly, Maria Friedman, she's an English director, and she uh, she'd been working on this show in one way or another for many years. She had done a production of it many years as one of the the lead actors in it in in London. Um, so she knew it really well, and she had a vision uh, for it. I think it's part of it is casting. Sometimes it's that. The show also did go through revisions. George Firth, who wrote the book, and Sondheim, who wrote the music and lyrics, changed it. They reworked parts of it after the first show closed, the first production. And they 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 substituted some numbers. They took out the whole introductory piece of the show, which was very biting and depressing. Um, and they replaced it with something uh, more interest, fun and, and, and kind of um, uh, uh, sexy. And I think that that changed the whole way the show was uh, proceeded. And Maria Friedman found in that that when with the right actors, you could underline the emotional ties between these three people and and the ways in which they broke apart. There is amazing things can happen in a rehearsal room that with this with sometimes the same lines that are are just uh, tweaked in terms of the emotional pitch of what's going on. And it changes, it can change everything. It's kind of a butterfly effect um, within a within a production. And in this case, it was making, I think the central character of Frank, who played by Jonathan Groff, um, a more um, appealing human being. Uh, somebody everybody wanted to be around. And that linchpin uh, helped an audience identify with these characters. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Once again, folks, we're talking to Peter Marks here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, staff writer and chief theater critic for the Washington Post. Now, uh, what about Here We Are? Mm. By uh, Did you get a, a chance to, to do a little, um, I guess, crit, uh, criticism of that production yet? Uh, well, here's the thing. I am going to that show on Saturday night. I have not seen it yet. I've been in, We're invited. So critics, just so you know, critics are invited to one of two or three or four preview performances just prior to what's called the opening night. So the first, the first, um, the first uh, performance of a show on Broadway or off Broadway is not the opening. The opening night occurs two, three weeks into the run, sometimes more, after a period of preview performances where they're trying to perfect things, maybe tweak a little bit of the performances and the music in a show or a play, uh, the words, the lines. Um, and then we come in, uh, we're invited. We're given a, usually a pair of comp tickets to see the show. I usually bring my wife, uh, but not always. She's a theater lover. And, um, 
so 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 this weekend is the the critics performances of of here we are which was not completed at the time of Sondheim's death he wrote it with uh with a a writer a playwright a very clever playwright named David Ives who wrote a play several years ago people may have seen called Venus and Fur mm-hmm. that's his best known work uh and uh uh, the play is the musical is based on two movies by an avant-garde film director, Luis Bunuel, uh, and uh, one of which was *The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie*, which is a very influential film among you know cineasts who people love movies, not very well known, and they've turned this into a um, into a two-act musical. The the issue apparently is, and I haven't seen it yet, but what I've heard is that, you know, there's music in the first act and almost none in the second act. <laughs> so so it's an interesting, you know, it's either a really interesting concept for how to, you know, revolutionize musicals and merge them with plays or it's an incompleted musical. I don't I'll have to figure that out myself when I see it. Yeah. So uh, uh, and it's got a great cast. I mean, that's the exciting and one of the exciting things. It's a really strong cast of actors uh, that um, uh, um, uh, who, who I'm really int- I mean, I'm intrigued to see them in this. So uh, and it's playing not on Broadway, but in a place called The Shed, which is a, uh, a, a fairly new um, theater in Hudson Yards on the far west side of, of Midtown Manhattan. Great. Have fun. Have fun. Sounds like it's going to be a great time. <laughs> now, um, when when you're talking about the uh, the right actor, uh, actors, right. and your, your, your direct direction and uh, the, the production element of a, of a show, mm-hmm. is it basically uh, the perfect storm when you have a hit in your view or could... It, it, of all those all those factors uh is that the way you you see it yeah yeah that's a good uh that's a good question yes well a, a hit you know a hit is a um is actually a financial term so we call a hit a show that has um made its money back that's basically the 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 the, the ridiculously uh, arcane definition of what a hit is but in the sense of a critical hit you're describing that, that, that issue of how do you write a rave? What is it that qualifies as a rave review? And it is, it is indeed something that feels like a whole, an organic whole. It's an organism in which all the parts coalesce, the acting, the design, the direction, uh, the writing, you know, all feel as if they're of a piece and they thrill you. They fill you up uh, with a, a sense of completeness, a sense of uh, mission accomplished, a, a sense of, of your own senses, your own sensory experience heightened by what's happened on the stage. And and what happens again, you know, going back to your question about gut or, or instinct or brain, it starts with that gut feeling that you've just seen something remarkable. And then your job as a critic is to is to understand how these various elements have been integrated and what was it about the performances that worked so well for you? Why did someone seem so naturally uh, uh, conversant with the character they're playing? Why did why did the um, the movement of the play seem so briskly un, um, unencumbered so that so that you don't even feel time passing? Uh, you know, the worst thing for a critic for me is when, like, if I'm 15 minutes into a show and I'm looking at my watch, bad. <laughs> you know, that I shouldn't. I shouldn't be aware of time. It should almost be an element that's 
that's uh, that whisked out of the theater. And then it's and it's a question of what elements of the design, the costumes, the the set, the music or the sound, um, how well it's produced, how much you how much is um, discernible to you, what kinds of feelings it evokes for you. And if it somehow enlarges your sense of the world, uh, um, how these all these these elements play with each other and and ultimately you lay it at the doorstep of the playwright or composer and the director uh you know we blame we tend to blame we tend to come down hardest on those people um uh when the when the work isn't uh satisfying but uh but direction is such a uh, mysterious skill until you sit in a the rehearsal room and watch what directors do. Some directors sit there with their mouth shut and just watch what's going on and occasionally add a word or two. Some are very intrusive and, you know, want to, uh, you know, hold court. So, uh, you know, what, it, you know, we, we probably as critics sometimes attribute things that are not the director's achievement to the director. And sometimes we blame them for things that are not uh, uh, their fault. Uh, but we, but ultimately when it says directed by X, you know, they're basically saying, hey, I'm responsible for this. Exactly. Now, do you have a preference between musicals and straight plays? Um, no. I, I would actually say that my, my gateway drug was musicals. Because the first thing I ever saw was I was five years old and I saw The Sound of Music with Mary Martin on Broadway. My mother took me and it was instant. It was it was love at first sight. Um I, I took to it and, and the um, and musical theater seemed this entrancing, strange, exotic other place that you could go to. And, and I always so I always felt organically connected to that work. And then, of course, my parents, you know, had played cast albums in the house that was there. That was the soundtrack of their lives. So it, it all made sense to me. But plays became. Uh, the plays came a little later, and and but and moved me in totally different ways uh, than music and musicals did. But words seemed as powerful as music as musical notes to me, and so uh, I don't have a preference on any given night to a musical or a play. I have a preference for a good musical or a good play, but I can I can be as blown away uh, by Martin McDonough doing, you know, the beauty queen of his words in the beauty queen of Lenan as I can by, uh, you know, by uh, Mark Shaman writing the music for Hairspray. It does, you know, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it crosses borders both ways. Yeah, I totally get that. I totally get that. I, I, I want to, um, again, thank you for being on the show. Uh, just one more question, and I'm going to sure. basically uh, share a quote from a guest I had on a while back, Barbara Walsh. You probably know Barbara oh, Walsh. Actress? Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. And I asked her about um, the arts in general and, and their importance to society. And, and, and she said without taking pause, without uh, any hesitation, that the arts are the only thing that will save us. Mm. And as we speak, and, and as always, I guess, is the case, the world is craziness right Indeed. uh what do you think about the importance of uh, the arts to to us as a species to us as a society uh, is it just superfluous or is it indeed something that could save us 
What a great leading question that is. Uh, you know, I think I've been in enough audiences uh, of, of enough different kinds of people, people who don't look like each other, people who don't look like me or share my experience. And we can sit a thousand of us or 50 of us in a room because I can talk most um, authoritatively, I think, about theater. And I think of myself as a professional member of the audience. I can see them transformed uh, by what they've seen. And I, I've seen the impact that uh, someone they don't know, a whole group of people they don't know, uh, giving them knowledge, giving them um, information, giving them a sense of another kind of world that they didn't know existed and being universally moved, all finding common coin in what is being expressed. And that to me seems like the highest kind of civility and civility is, is sort of a, is sort of the, the entrance point to understanding. And, and that is what the arts provide. They provide a platform for that to happen to all of us together. And I think it's, it's a, it's a building block for love and for appreciation uh, of people who don't share your experience. And I think that's what is absolutely fundamentally human and, and needed in, 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 the, in the performing arts or any kind of art. Well said. Beautifully said. Thank you, Peter Mark, so much for taking time out and uh, talking with us here today on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And I look forward to reading some more of your analysis of theater as time goes on. Thank you. No, and your questions are great. It's a lovely conversation to have with you. I feel my day is improved by talking to you, so I appreciate that. That's high praise. Thank you, sir. Take care of yourself. Will do. And then one day, a tune pops into my head. I jot down some dummy words. Nick and I do a quick head arrangement. Then we call the studio and sing it to crew. And the whole world exploded.
stage. I love to hear the words of conversation when I sit in my office thinking about the point of all this existence. What is love? What is integrity? What is courage and strength? What is kindness and justice? How do you know? I hear voices and song on the stage in the theater room with plush, wood, pillars, and sound acoustics. Can I come in and soothe my soul? I would like to grow and understand, for in my heart I am a younger man. How does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? How do we emerge victorious from the quagmire? Leave the battlefield waving Betsy Ross's flag higher? Yo, turns out we have a secret weapon, an immigrant You know and love who's unafraid to step in He's constantly confusing, confounding the British henchmen Everyone give it up for America's favorite fighting Frenchman! I'm taking this horse, smell of rains, wicked red coats, weather with blood stains Feel like never gonna stop until I make a drop of random up and scatter the remains down Watch me engaging them, escaping them, enraging them, ow! I go to France for more fun, I come back with more guns and ships and so their balance shifts We rendezvous with Rochambeau, consolidate their gifts We can end this war in Yorktown, cut them off at sea But for this to succeed, there's someone else we need I know So he knows what to do in the trench, ingenuitive and fluent in French, I mean So you're gonna have to use him eventually, what's he gonna do in the bench, I mean No one has more resilience or matches my practical, tactical brilliance You want to fight for your land back I need my right hand man back Get your right hand man back You know you gotta get your right hand man back I mean you gotta put some bottom to the letter But the sooner the better to get your right hand man back Alexander Hamilton Troops are waiting in the field for you If you join us right now together We can turn the tide Oh Alexander Hamilton I have soldiers that will yield for you if we manage to get this right, they'll surrender my early life. The world will never be the same. Alexander. And there you have it. Episode 546 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Peter Marks and these musical artists. Thelonious Monk, Bruce Springsteen, Barbara Walsh, Jersey Boys' original Broadway cast, Hamilton's original Broadway cast, Branford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard too, and of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, 
let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself.